soul. We believe you are God and in control. Welcome to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Bram, a ministry of Worship Generation Church located in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please visit us at www.worshipgeneration.com. We believe in the power of the gospel. We believe you can transform every soul. We believe you're the Savior. Now let's join Pastor Joey as we study through the Bible. Let the nations be glad, all his saints rejoice. As he gets to chapter 2, he says this in verse 1. For I want you to know what great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words, for though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Again, back in chapter 1, when he talked about his prayer for them, how he prayed for them, that he asked that they'd be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. If you harmonize Philippians and Ephesians and Colossians were all written in this timeline when he was incarcerated for his faith in Rome, you can see consistencies in these three books of what God was showing him as the apostle, in, especially when he say how I pray for, pray for you. And... He's not praying like, hey, that you'd have a, you know, a good day. That you would. He's praying these profound, deep things that we see. And verse 10, he also said that you may walk worthy, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So even in when he said last in the chapter 1 about how he prayed for them, in all wisdom, notice the words, wisdom and spiritual understanding. And then in verse 10, he said, increasing in the knowledge of God. And here tonight in this text, he uses those same words. He uses understanding in verse 2, full assurance of understanding to the knowledge. And then he says in verse 3, all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we get those three words again, knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. So take note of that, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But this first phrase just jumps out at the page at us if we really think about it. Look at this statement. Now, again, I got to go back to verse 24 because if you look at the profoundness of verse 24, he said, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh. That is lacking the afflictions of Christ. That's a profound statement to meditate upon. And then here in verse 1 of chapter 2, it's just as profound and it's a continuation of these thoughts. He says, for I want you to know what great conflict I have for you. You know, ministry, serving the Lord, life has affliction. But in Jesus' name, our affliction works together for good to make us like Christ to the benefit of glorifying him in time, space, and matter and preparing us for eternity. But life also has, in Christ, conflict. Now, there's conflict without Christ. The world's full of conflict. 
conflicting philosophies, conflicting worldviews, conflicting world religions of men. Intolerance of those things from different parties of different people. Intolerance of ethnicities and conflicts over ethnicities, conflicts over gender, and so on and so forth. Ideologies. Paul said here, verse 1 in the Holy Spirit, I want you to know what great conflict I have for you. That's a very profound statement. Because a lot of times spiritual leadership, mothers, dads, parents, we buffer things. We, we go through battles on behalf of our children, uh, husbands for their spouses, wives for their husbands. We often carry things. You know, there's things between us and the Lord. Sometimes people have great sufferings I, that they carry, and people don't even know how much physical pain they might be in, or trials are going through, infirmities, afflictions, testings, and things. Some of us are more public, some of us are more private. But as you serve the Lord, there's going to be conflict, because we're the kingdom of light in a world of darkness. And like Christ was the light that shines in a dark place, we're the light that shines in a dark place. So as we give our life to Christ and make ourselves available to Christ, where he sends us, he has to send us into the darkness because the light is meant to shine in the darkness. That's the Great Commission. And there, there's conflict. I mean, the book of Acts is basically a book of conflict. It's conflict. It, it's conflict against the apostolic message in, the, in Jerusalem. It's conflict against the apostolic message in Judea, Samaria. It's conflict against the apostolic uh, message even amongst the Jewish people who had believed the message. Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. It's conflict in the communities where where the Roman, Greek world and culture were strong. It's conflict. It's conflict in the synagogues as Paul preached to his own people to begin the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles, the rest of the world. Conflict, conflict, conflict. It's conflict before Agrippa. It's conflict before, uh, you know, Felix and Festus. It's conflict. It's it's conflict on the boat that's going to be shipwrecked. There's conflict. And some people seem to find conflict and other people it seems to find them. But know this, there's conflict with the gospel. There's conflict with God's will and work going forward in your life. There's going to be conflict for it. There's going to be a battle. There's going to be conflict in your own soul sometimes. There might be conflict in the home. We just saw on Tuesday night, Jesus teaching on his second coming in Mark 13. He says that in the last days, what to expect, and speaking of the Jewish people uh, in what would seemed to be the great tribulation period, but he said they'd be rejected, they'd be hated, they'd be betrayed, and they'd be killed. Like, those are strong phrases to associate, and he said in all of it, for his namesake. But we know that's the history of the church, too. But see, we just saw in the previous chapter, Christ and us, the hope of glory. So all the conflicts we ever go through, the filling up in our bodies, the afflictions of Christ to the benefit of others, it is Christ and us, the hope of glory. It's making us like Jesus as we are humbled and broken through trials and tribulations and things that we go through. And it makes us more like Jesus to the benefit of everyone around us and to our benefit for all of eternity. And in the end, when the kingdom is established, when he comes in his glory, we're in his glory with him. So we're under construction for glory. But that construction is affliction to ourselves of our pride and our flesh and all that we might hold dear. And really, that you know, if you think about it, I, and I haven't thought that much about it, in detail like more recently but our walk to heaven is a death march it's the death of our pride our selfishness and our carnality and our worldliness and would to to god that he would death march those things because we need humility and we need to be selfless and we need to be loving 
and not bitter, and we need to be gracious and merciful. So we should never be surprised that we're filling up in our, our flesh the afflictions of Christ through life experiences. See, again, people have afflictions, but they don't necessarily benefit them. It might just be life afflicting you. But in Christ, every affliction serves a purpose. And those afflictions for the believer, they are and truly related to also the conflict that's there. Paul even said to the Galatians, the flesh and the spirit, they war against each other. We have a conflict within our own selves, between our old man, our old woman, and the new man and the new woman in Christ. And so we carry so much so often, especially in leadership, we carry things. And people don't know, like, sometimes what, who, like, who knows what burden Pastor Chuck carried, what burdens he carried for years at Calvary Coast to Mesa. I mean, as stories come out that, you know, from people making death threats against him because he was pro-Zionist for Israel or pro-life or just true to the word of God. And Pastor Chuck received a lot of death threats. You know, he had a psychotic man put a loaded gun to his head at one time. That's a well-known story. He identified the dead body of his dad and his brother when their plane crashed on Camp Pendleton. Like, we just don't know. And, you know, Chuck was a very private person, but he was such a loving and gentle and humble person. You don't realize how that came about. Why did everyone love Pastor Chuck and that brokenness? Because those things happen. And there was great conflict for him. I think back as a pastor for Pastor Chuck, it must have been like to see 300 Calvary chapels leave the movement to become a different movement back in the 70s. That he, people who came to him to be trained to be pastors, he entrusted someone else, and that someone else birthed another movement in contrast to Calvary and often created conflicts with Calvaries. And yet Pastor Chuck just, you know, it's the Lord's church. But the conflict, and he would never speak, I never heard him speak ill of those people that did that. Because a man and a woman can receive nothing unless it comes from the Lord. And there's great conflict. There's conflict for Christ's glory in our life on a day-to-day basis, the life of the Spirit. There's conflict for our marriages. There's conflict for our children's calling from the Lord and the battle that we intercede for our children as adults to make good decisions. It's a, you know, and Paul said at the end of his life, I have kept the faith, I have finished the race, and I have, you know what I'm going to say, I have fought the good fight. It's a good fight. This conflict that Paul's talking about for these believers, it's a good fight. It's the conflict for the, what's true and just and noble and praiseworthy and honorable. It's a battle for that Christ in him we are complete, that all the church will ever need in every generation, whether it's the greatest generation or baby boomers or Gen X or millennials or Z, that all we'll ever need is Jesus Christ and our sufficiency in him. And that that pure doctrine would not be polluted with false teachings as it generally is attacked in every generation. And having been a minister of the gospel for 31 years, I have seen a lot of dog and pony shows come and go to mislead people away from a pure confidence in Jesus Christ. We cannot let, we, we can't, we don't ever want to be moved like the compass that Christ is our sufficiency for all things. And there's a conflict for that. When I taught last Tuesday night, Jesus, whenever he talked about his return, he says, take heed that you're not deceived. There'll be false Jesuses. And our land is filled with false Jesuses. You know, I don't sit around and say, I can't wait to get up in the pulpit and say the liberal church has false Jesuses. I don't say, I can't wait to go to church and tell people Jehovah's Witnesses have a false Jesus. It's not like I say, oh, it's great, it's money. I can tell people Mormons have a false Jesus. 
I can't wait to get, it's not like I wake up Wednesday like, I just can't wait to tell the Muslim world that they have the wrong Jesus. But they do have the wrong Jesus, all of them. And they all have false Jesuses. The liberal church does not have the Jesus of the Bible. All these liberal denominations, they've renounced his person, born of the Virgin Mary, his sinless life. They've renounced his physical resurrection in various degrees, his ascension to heaven and see it right in the Father. They've stripped him of his glory, and they have a false Jesus. The Mormons have a completely different Jesus, an angel. Jehovah's Witnesses have a God, but not God. The mysteries of the Father and the Son we see right here, the Father in Christ. The, the Muslims have Jesus as a prophet, but not the Son of God, and that's why they reject Christ, because they say God has no Son, which is directly contrasting to this verse. It's not like I wake up and say, boy, it's just great to be a pastor and tell the whole world they're wrong with Jesus. But nope, those belief systems and those ideologies, they are wrong. We have the true Jesus, and we've already read that Christ is a preeminent one. He's before all things. He's the preeminent one. He's over all things. And he's holding the whole universe together. He's going to go boom like a massive atom bomb in the entire universe because Christ is holding it together. And you can be sure as the sun rises in the east that when I come to this pulpit for the rest of my life, I'm going to preach Christ, born of the virgin, the sinless Savior, and the risen Lord, seated at the right hand of the Father, coming in glory. We've got the right Jesus. And thus, we fill up in ourselves the afflictions of Christ, and we have great conflict for this truth. This truth, the devil throws everything he can against the church and the, the ambassadors of Christ and the citizens of heaven. He wants to dilute this truth in your life, in my life, in this church, any way possible. He wants to dilute this truth in your marriage, in your singleness, in your going forward and turning from sin and walking with the Lord. He wants to destroy all encouragement and edification for the things of God in your life. And it is great conflict. And there's no way around it. I remember listening to a Billy Graham study about seven months ago in a very difficult season of my life where Billy Graham said, you've got to choose which side you're on, but you can be sure there's a war between heaven and hell and you cannot avoid choosing sides. Young Billy, he's like, you can't avoid this. You are on one side or the other. And Jesus said it as well. So this great conflict is, is something that we just can't get around. But Paul would say, I fought the good fight. And it's the fight for truth of the gospel in our life, in our homes, with our children, our children's children, in the body of Christ, our local church, and in the universal church, and to the world as a whole, in our timeline, however long that timeline is, that we're on this planet. And Paul says, I want you to know what great conflict I have for you. For people he had never seen, a church he had never visited. I mean, what if I received a letter when I was pastoring in Virginia, Vermont, and Pastor Chuck had never been there, he said, I have great conflict for you. You'd be like, wow, really? Like, we're on your radar? You care about us? Yes. It's the heart of the pastor. It's the heart of the shepherd or the shepherdess, the conflict. And I want you to know, and sometimes we need to know, and tonight we need to know, it's a battle. When we come to Christ, we have to determine if, if we think life is a playground or a battleground. And unfortunately, a lot of Americans who go to church think life is a playground, and the Jesus they have is some genie in a bottle to make their lives feel better about themselves without growing and being left in their old person. But life is a battleground, and it's about being transformed from glory to glory and becoming the new woman, the new man in Christ. And we've got one chance to get it right. And I want you to know this great conflict in me, in you, for us, and for the church in our timeline and future generations. 
I want you to know what great conflict. He says, for you, Laodicea, and all those not seen my face. His conflict was for the entire universal church, the body of Christ in the Roman world. The church that would suffer great things in the next 2,000 years. Up to this day, we're, again, Recent statistics are coming out showing that there's more persecution against Christians in the year of our Lord, 2019, than any documentable time in recent history. All over the world right now, persecution against Christians is at a very high level. And people are standing, and they're going through afflictions and suffering and persecutions because of their faith in Jesus. And again, they're maybe not being delivered from the affliction, but we know that Jesus is with them in the affliction. And it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. And we're being transformed from glory to glory, as in a mirror. It's not about the comfort level of this journey. It's about the growth level in Christ in this journey to prepare us for the glory of the kingdom to come. And that's why the Lord's Prayer says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It starts with your kingdom come and it ends with yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So that's who we are. Now, as we think about um, this conflict You know, he said he had this conflict in the present sense. He's concerned for these believers and the battle and the future in front of them. And the whole rest of this letter is like the introduction. Really, it is like a second introduction to the letter, the purpose of the letter. And it's it's a concern for the future. The conflict uh, for, you know, well, it's a concern for the, uh, it's a concern for the future because it's like, you know, it's ongoing, but it's like, how is this going to play out for these churches? Because you see good churches destroyed. It happens all the time. I mean, you see movements in the history of the church where great men and women were used to start movements, and then you see within a couple of generations they can be totally corrupted from the sound doctrine that started them. So it's there. Now, I want to... Now, he again, he talked about this conflict. He, He said that what he wanted for them. Literally, some translations say what his goal was for them, or what he even, another translation says what his wish was for them, but in most cases, like what he desired for them. So if you have a wordier translation other than New King James, it might use phrases like that, which help us understand this type of, uh, this type of a reading, because it's pretty deep thinking when you, when you think about it. We just read through it, you're like, oh, knowledge, wisdom, understanding, yeah. So, but in verses 2 through 3, there's just a heart of what he's saying that he has for them, that he wants for them. We'll come back to that. But in verse 4, because, again, the concern, the present tense and future concern is lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. And see, one of the things about the devil as the father lies is he has false and persuasive words. Our best life is not now. Like John Corson said at his son Peter John's funeral, our best life is not now. Our best life is the one to come. And don't be foolish enough to think otherwise. Our crucified life is now. Our glorified life is in eternity. The Bible warns about in the last days men having doctrines tickling of people's ears and preaching things they want to hear that appeal to their flesh. The book of Jude is a total warning about carnal teachers who are central and carnal in their teachings and they make God a God of light, a God of darkness. And they make... God who's holy, carnal, just like they are. Because carnal men, always carnal men and women make gods of their own conjectures. So angry men make angry gods, and sensual men make sensual gods. And blame their sensuality on God when it's out of bounds of God's design for sensuality. And the Bible tells us beware. Do not be deceived, 
as a man or woman sow, they shall reap. And if you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. And if you sow to the spirit, you will reap life. And we sow to the spirit. But the concern was there. This book is going to address those concerns of legalism, sensuality, and all these things that would take us from Christ. And not progressing from the old woman or old man before Christ, but Christ in us, hope of glory. See, because when we're born again, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and we pass from death to life, and it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's incredible. Who can understand this mystery? It's the mystery he's talking about here. But then he commends them for their past. See, he says, for though I'm absent, verse 5, from you in the Spirit, I, I rejoice seeing your good order and steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So they had a past of steadfastness in Christ. And he had a current conflict of concern for them because he was concerned that in the future they might be led astray. So you see the confidence of the past, the concern of the present, and also a concern for the future. And we see that. That's the background to what we're going to read over the next six weeks as we move through spring towards summer. Now, coming back to verse 2, this great conflict this great goal or this great wish for the church that Paul had, the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul, is passed on to us. And these are things that are for us. And as Nate Gallagher, my son-in-law, was here last week, he said something that just immediately, well, he said a couple of profound things. If you were here, he said more than a couple. But the first thing Nate said is he loves coming to worship generation because he gets, you know, Nate speaks all over the East Coast. And he speaks, when he teaches for his dad, he's teaching thousands of people. You know, he goes to Ghana, he goes to Central America. You know, there are a number of senior pastors in the East Coast that are trying to get him to be their replacements. But his dad's like, <laughs> his dad loves him, you know, and he fills in for his dad. And uh, obviously, you know, Nate Gallagher is extremely anointed, gifted teacher with a very gentle spirit and a humble heart. But he said here last week, if you weren't here, he said, he loved, everywhere he goes in his generation, he hears about community, 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 and everyone's trying to build community. And he said, what I love about coming to worship generation, it's way better than community, it's family. And that's a great compliment from an outsider, because we are family. Even this week, talking with different people in the church about different things, that phrase family comes up. And all churches should be family. That's why mega churches are so rare and so unusual, because they're more like organizations. Not that they can't be family, because you find a family within a larger family, but it's just, you know, there's a reason the average church in America is about 120 people, because it's, it's family. Now, we've supported a lot of pastors on the East, in, in, uh, around the world, including in the, in the Middle East. You know, these are congregations of, you know, 40 to 80 people that are being persecuted by various terrorist groups, even now on this day, in Syria and Lebanon and these places. And they are very much family. Our culture in America is not quite as family-oriented, so we work hard for community. But really, the body of Christ, and some cultures are more like this, it's, it's family. A lot of places in the world, you have four generations under one roof. In America, it's not so much just the way it played out, by and large. But we're a spiritual family, and we're meant to be together as a family. And he also said, Nate also said that Christ, is, you know, God didn't send his son to die on the cross so we could be his employee. Remember that statement? I actually got it in my notes right here. I was like, whoa. Because I always feel like I'm an employee, like, okay, what do we do today, boss? You know, like, no, we're not employees. We're joint heirs with Christ. Employees aren't in the estate. We are adopted children. We're children of God. 
and he died on the cross to bring us into a relationship into the family as joint heirs. We're not employees. But see, a lot of people reduce church to being employed, a religious situation. But what the Holy Spirit's saying here and what Nate affirmed for us as a church is we're a family. We have new season coming. We've had lots of new seasons. People come and go. We have Sam Coca praying about coming back, who the beloved Sam, who's a pastor here and has been on the East Coast for years. And if Sam comes back, every time I say people are like, oh, wow. I'm like, yeah, this, you know, we're, we're really hoping for that. But, you know, if it happens, it happens. But, but you know, I think about Sam Coca the same way I think about my children. When Timmy comes back for two weeks from being out at sea, I'm just like, Timmy's here. And I get so excited. And, you know, we might have three of the four kids in the house for five-day stretch, and then we might not have him in the house for months. But we're a family. They're not employees when they show up. They're family. They're children. And even if they're not, you know, and you don't fire your children, you know. (laughs) They might break your heart, but you don't fire them. You've been listening to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Brandt. If you would like more information about the ministry of Worship Generation, visit us online at www.worshipgeneration.com, where you can listen to the podcast of today's entire message. Worship Generation is located at 10350 Ellis Avenue in Fountain Valley, California. Our service times are Saturday evenings at 6 p.m. and Tuesdays at 7 p.m. And also follow Pastor Joey on Instagram under the tag name at Joey Brand. Thanks for listening and God bless. Not ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed, not ashamed of the one I love. Not ashamed, not ashamed.